Hi, I'm Rachel Kane, author of the Morganville Vampire series, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment over at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks and Julie, and Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. This is where we give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. Now, for this episode, we're speaking with prolific author and writing professor Tim Wagner. He has published numerous novels, three short story collections, and has over 100 published stories in the fantasy, horror, and thriller genres. We discuss his Necropolis books, Shadow Watch books, Ghost Trackers, and his media tie-in books for shows like Supernatural and Stargate SG-1, and much more. He also tells us about his newest Shadow Watch book, Dream Stalkers, and he shares lots of excellent writing advice for any of you listening that are writers or want to be. Now before we start that fun interview, we do want to point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. You can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now let's get started with our interview with Tim Wagner. Hi, Tim. Now, you've published over a hundred stories so far in your career in the genres of fantasy, horror, and thriller. Now, can you tell us how you got the writing bug and how you got your first story published? Right. I've also done 30 novels in the wow. uh, genres, too, and a mix of original stuff and media tie-in stuff, like novels related to Grimm and Supernatural, that kind of thing. Woohoo! You know, I, I've been making up stories ever since I was very, very little. Um, the very first thing I remember doing was I had an old stenographer's pad, you know, it's like a spiral notebook, and it was a small one. And what I did was I had seen somewhere, like in a magazine or a TV commercial, that there was a movie where King Kong fought Godzilla. Mm-hmm. And I'd never seen the movie, but I was fascinated by it. So I drew, like, the story so you could flip the pages, you know, and you can it's like a little comic book. And that was the very first thing I remember doing, and I was probably four or five maybe. Then when it would be time to, like, you know, play with – you know, what today are called action figures, but people just called them dolls back then. I, think. <laughs> so, I would make up stories for them. I mean, there would be whole, like, elaborate, you know, stories. And sometimes they continue from, like, day to day or week to week, too. And then eventually, long about sixth grade, I started drawing, a, like, a comic strip featuring myself and my friends as superheroes. <laughs> my friends would read it if they were in it, you know. And I did that all the way through high school and tried to get better and better as an artist and I thought about you know trying to be a comic book artist but drawing took so long also my friends used to make fun of my art and they say the stories were good but the art wasn't so good <laughs> so you know I shifted over probably about my senior year in high, uh, high school to writing I'd read an interview with Stephen King in an old I think it was Dracula Lives it was a Marvel black and white comic book with the adventures of Dracula <laughs> they had a Stephen King interview in it when he I think he had just finished The Shining so he was you know still new and when I read that interview, it was the first time that I realized somebody could choose to be a writer. It just never had occurred to me. Mm. Even as a reader, just never, I never thought about the person on the other side of the page and the person who could create it. And that's when I thought, you know, maybe I could do this too. So, And then when I was a, a freshman in college, I just started writing a whole bunch and never stopped. Great. Now, many of your stories take place in original settings. Mm-hmm. But like you mentioned, you have done a lot of media tie-in works, mm-hmm. like Stargate SG-1, Supernatural. Two of my favorite franchises. <laughs> <laughs> uh, recently, Grimm, uh, Dragonlance. So mm-hmm. uh, what's some unique challenges for writing with existing properties like that? And how did you get involved with that type of media tie-in writing? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think that I had, had read enough of it because, you know, when um, like a movie would come out, I would often get the novelization of the movie back when there was a lot more of those. Because I was always fascinated by, you know, more to the story, the things that the writers would add, um, like the thoughts and the feelings of the characters, things you couldn't get, you know, just by watching the movie. Mm-hmm. And then eventually kind of branching out into reading original tie-ins and stuff. And one of the things that fascinated me is, like, what do you do when you work with, uh, you know, a certain set of circumstances where you have just these characters, just these kind of possible stories? You know, you're not going to have Superman go around and start killing people. or You know, I mean, there are just <laughs> things that they won't do in that kind of a story. And then trying to capture the feel of the world and the, the voice of the characters and everything. So I got really interested. I think the 
very first one I did was I was also just trying in the early days of writing just to find a way to break in. And I had sent some sample chapters of things into Wizards of the Coast and I'd never heard from them. And I had read a book called The Renegade Writer. It's for freelance writers of nonfiction, but in it, basically, it says all the ways that they tell you how you're supposed to do stuff in publishing are wrong. Nobody ever really does it this way. So it's <laughs> supposed to do it. And I thought, okay. So I called up Wizards of the Coast and told them I'd sent a submission a while ago. And eventually, they hooked me up with one of the editors. And we started talking. And that's when he told me that they were just getting ready to do a young adult version of Dragonlance. But nobody had started anything with it. Hmm. And he just, you know, he just said, do you want to take a shot at it? So I did. And so after that, you know, once you get one credit, you know, one thing published, it's a lot easier to go to somebody else and say, hey, I see you're doing Stargate books. Could I try one? Or same thing for Supernatural. You know, you ask a writer who's already published a, in the in that particular franchise, could you hook me up with your editor? And you just, you know, pitch an idea to them. So little by little over time, you know, you start to do it. And the, the challenges are trying to come up with something big enough for a book, especially if it's a TV show. Because a lot of times their episodes are so much, you know, they'd be like more like short stories and novellas. So you need something bigger. And then it's it's capturing the feel of it and capturing the characters and their voices and trying to imagine what they might be thinking. So it's it's a lot of fun. And it, But it does open up some opportunities. For instance, like Supernatural is filmed up in, in Vancouver around British Columbia, but in a book they can suddenly make it to a tropical beach. <laughs> in my book, they just happen to make it to Ohio. So, <laughs> Well, there you go. Yeah. Right. And, but, you know, and then do no, more. No budget constraints. Yeah. Right. No budget constraints. More elaborate <laughs> right. aliens, like for Stargate right. SG-1, you know, things that would be really hard to do on television. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So there's no budget. You can do what you want for that kind of a thing, as long as it still fits the feel. You know, I always wonder why Sam and Dean don't go to cities more often. <laughs> would be like tons of monsters in these places and the, the time they went to chicago there was a ton yeah going to these little tiny out of the way spots because it's just a feel of the series you know mm-hmm. they're on the road and they're in small and usually the midwest mm-hmm. so a few times they've gone elsewhere i mean if they hung out in la for too long i just think it wouldn't feel the same it but would it really yeah it would just take you out of it so much it wouldn't even feel like they were real anymore i don't think right which is a real paradox because they're the two hunters that like do everything that's big and cosmic for the whole planet, but they can't be, they can't go to Boston or, they you know, they're just in like, they, they fight a monster in a ditch one week and the next week, you know, they're fighting something that will destroy the whole planet and just, you know, they have the two extremes. They don't do the middle. So. Yeah. It's starting to be kind of like on Buffy the Vampire Slayer where he goes, it's the apocalypse. And they go right. again. Right, right, right. <laughs> Speaking of those, we're huge fans of Supernatural and Stargate SG-1. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about those particular books and, and the, the plots you came up with them? Well, Stargate, you know, when I was looking at the books they'd already done, because sometimes what you want to do is pitch something different, or at least different enough. I thought it might be cool to have Daniel in a book, and boy, some of the fans weren't happy about that. And, <laughs> you know, they, uh, not Daniel, I mean... Um, I was going to say, he's always... was Jonah. Oh, Jonah. Right? Oh, Yeah. So the, the guy who replaced Daniel for like a season. Yeah. So I thought it was cool to see what was going on with him. And, you know, Daniel was still in there. But, you know, on the cover, they put the other character and they didn't put Daniel. And so people were really upset. <laughs> yeah, oh, like, wow. you don't control the cover. <laughs> I know, I know. But they thought you know, there was no Daniel. How, you know, how dare I leak Daniel out? And, <laughs> but I just thought it'd be interesting to follow that character. And then what I did was, you know, as a kid, I really loved Norse mythology. You know, I would read like the Thor comic book when I was really little. And then from there, I got into Norse mythology. And so I thought, well, it'd be really cool if I took this idea of Valhalla and tried to make that into, you know, something that had a, uh, at least in terms of Stargate, you know, a scientific basis, you know, mm-hmm. in, in religion. And uh, so I did that, and that was a lot of fun. Um, and I enjoyed working with the characters. Supernatural was, um, I just loved the show. So I really did, you know, just try to find the editor contact so I could go ahead and, you know, say, you got any more Supernatural books? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody write. And so... But then I went ahead and, um, you know, just pitched several ideas to them. Usually I pitch about four or five, and then the studio will pick, like, one that they think that sounds okay. And then I'll go ahead and write an outline, and the studio has to, you know, prove it at that point. And that part can take a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not so good when the deadline doesn't change, so. <laughs> so write the book then. That can be difficult. Right. Now, you were talking about how you read about being a renegade and everything that they tell you is wrong, and you were pitching all these ideas and contacting editors. Um, how long have you worked as a freelance writer before you get you know, an agent or 
a manager? Yeah, I guess it really depends. Um, you know, some people do without agents. Um, other people will complete. You, know, you should have a novel length work because that's in general what agents represent the most. And they'll they'll get an agent for their very first novel and it'll work out for them. Other people they might wait until they've sold some things in the small press and maybe built up a bit of a reputation, you know, before they look mm-hmm. for an agent. In terms of just you know approaching editors cold, it helps to build up a you know a body of work to a certain degree. So by the t- before I started ever doing anything like that, I had already published you know, a number of stories and I think a, like one or two books in the small press, mm-hmm. right? Something like that. So, you know, at that point, at least I had enough, you know, credits under my belt that, you know, I wasn't just somebody calling up and saying, you know, please let me write. And they have no way of knowing whether I can write or not, you know, if I have any experience. Right. You know, it's not like you can just send them a resume necessarily. You actually have to have, you know, a real book or real stories published to show them. Mm-hmm. Before we move on, I don't, I don't want to give up Supernatural again. <laughs> Good. So, I was wondering if you'd say what the two plots were for those two books, because I believe I believe you wrote two. And, um, and then also, you were talking about notes from the studio and such. Oh, I'm yeah. wondering what's something that didn't make it through that you had pitched, or if not the pitch concept, at least uh, some detail. part of the story that didn't get included. Yeah, you know, I don't think, I don't remember the, the people at Supernatural having a, a problem with anything. I mean, during the time that I wrote it, um, it was really weird as I was getting ready to to pitching things, they sent me like the scripts for the rest of the season. Oh, wow. and I was like, I don't think they made me sign a non-disclosure agreement either. And I'm thinking, <laughs> Why did you do this? But I didn't read any of them because I didn't want to know how everything turned out. Um, they did tell me to make sure not to use Bobby because he was dead at that point and he was, you know, was going to come back as a ghost, but he hadn't done it yet. So they said I couldn't, you know, have anything to do with Bobby or touch Bobby. Um, I had a Reaper in the story. And they hadn't really spelled out some of the things about how Reapers worked. And so they made me take out some of the stuff I made up about that. Mm-hmm. And I was careful not to make up too much just in case they were going to take it out. So that wasn't a problem. But I think those are the only two things mm-hmm. they, they told me to avoid. I can't remember the other things I pitched, but I pitched, um, you know, the, that the brothers would encounter, you know, the basis for the legend of the Frankenstein monster. And it inspired the novel of Frankenstein. Um, and I thought that would be kind of interesting to give something that was technological, a supernatural spin to it. And so, I mean, so it is magic that does it with a little bit of use of technology to help the magic work. So it was my chance to write a Frankenstein story, which is really cool. And I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah. And then I also, in that story, wanted to do, uh, you know, what they call in TV, the B story, you know, the, the secondary story. And it was a flashback to when they were teenagers and something that thematically, you know, worked in with the resurrection of a dead kind of story. And so that was a lot of fun, you know, writing them at that age. And then the second one that was Carved in Flesh was the name of that one. The second one I wrote, I wrote, this has happened to me a couple times at tie-in projects, where the original people that were going to do it, for whatever reasons, pull out, and then they say, hey, Tim, could you do this? Oh. <laughs> and so it was supposed, this was, um, the road's not taken is what they called it. And it was already had its name. And it was supposed to be a choose-your-own-adventure book. And what they wanted was four separate stories that would have, you know, alternate endings to them or alternate pathways throughout them. And I decided to, when I pitched it, because I decided to make it into a short novel that had four different adventures that all connected that were all part of a main plot. Huh. So I, I had um, the first one dealt with a were saber tooth. It was super old because it was a saber tooth. So she also had like Alzheimer's. She was not in her, her right mind. <laughs> so that was, she was the crazy cat lady in the neighborhood. So that was a lot of fun. <laughs> the second one took place at um, a convention. It was a, uh, I think a, a dark art convention, like a fantasy art, horror art, and they encountered, um, you know, there was a guy who kind of like a Lovecraft's, you know, Pickman's Muse. I forget the name of the character, but I called it something's Muse. And, you know, he was using a real monster as his model. And then I did one that was a whole town had lost their souls, like Sam lost his soul in the one season. Oh, yeah. So it was a town full of sociopaths. And I'd <laughs> find, you know, where do their souls go and get them back? And then the very last story was it culminate. We find out that the whole thing's a plot by someone, that someone is steering the boys through each of these things. And there's like an item that they have like liberated or whatever that this, you know, the big bat is collected. And then they have to go up against the big bat at the end. And the best part was I got to kill them in so many different ways. It was <laughs> so much fun. And the only thing they questioned about one of the alternate paths is I thought, you know, they can't all die in every bad path. There should be something that just stops them from, you know, going on the adventure. Mm. And since the story was set in January, 
I had the in one place Dean slips on the ice and breaks his leg and they have to go to the hospital because they can't follow the, the thing got away. It's just gone. And so they're going to go take care of his leg. And uh, <laughs> I had a couple different editors and one said, I don't think that's sufficient. And the other one's like, sure, they're dying in all kinds of horrible ways and all the other ones. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. I thought, because, you know, in real life, you do adventure stuff. You're probably going to, you know, just hurt yourself and not be able to continue very quickly. <laughs> especially these guys they get to help you out of them all the time but they still manage to somehow you know keep on going and mm-hmm. sometimes they're in the hospital but well, usually the only time the injuries stick around is when they're really injured yeah jared <laughs> padalecki has had right. like what was it a broken hand earlier and then this season he had his arm in a sling i don't right. know if it was his elbow or shoulder you could tell they had to write it in last minute because yeah. it seemed yeah. like they were throwaway lines and then finally at several episodes in and Dean turns to Sam and goes, we've been beaten up by how many different things? And, and a demon, your arm is still in a sling just from a demon. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. And things like that are fun because I think the fans know it's kind of a wink toward them. But yeah. Something yeah. I don't think would work in the first year of a series is it's trying to find its legs. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if someone's really hurt, what are you going to do? You got yep. to work around it. Yeah. Right. And I've been reading some of your books, and mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed uh, your first book in the Shadow Watch series. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, really like the concept of, um, oh, if I remember correctly, Ideator and Incubus. Okay. And uh, I was just wondering if you talk a little bit about that book uh, series. Book one's out, book two's <laughs> coming out soon. Yeah, Nathan. Sorry, I'm laughing because the, apparently the word ideator scares our cat. <laughs> as soon as he said it, she took <laughs> off running out of the room. <laughs> It's a scary. scary <laughs> She's like, ah, and then ran. <laughs> so I was wondering if you explain a little bit. Uh, one of the characters is very memorable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you can explain a little bit about that series. Sure. The The series started out when I was, I've been thinking for years about how do I do a kind of a cool urban fantasy using dreams as the fantasy element. And then, and I never could quite work it out because I always thought, well, they, you know, do you have people that just appear in the dream plane and that's been done before in movies and comics and TV shows? And then it occurred to me, what if somebody, you know, their nightmares literally took on, you know, three-dimensional life and they became a separate being at a certain point. And that's what ideators are. They're the people that uh, usually, in, you know, adolescents are able to, uh, to dream up something. They have a persistent nightmare that eventually out of the raw kind of stuff of the universe has turned into a living being. And, um, then I decided, well, you know, what it would uh, you probably have kind of maybe a, a sort of like a police force because you'd have these nightmares running around. You got to do something about them. And then you have to have a place to put them. So I thought, well, maybe they'll have their own, you know, dimensional city, other dimensional city, you know, and another the place that they could go live or go be put if they're super dangerous, like in a prison. And so I decided it'd be fun to go ahead and, and, and have a couple agents of what I call the Shadow Watch. One is she's a young woman in her she's in her twenties, and her partner is the nightmare clown that she dreamed of, <laughs> Mr. Jinx. So that part is fun because he's like a Looney Tune character and a, and the Hulk kind of combined, and you don't know what he's going to do. But then I thought, well, that's you know an awful lot of of just kind of wackiness. You got to balance it somehow. And I thought, well, what if since these dream beings, uh, the, which I call incubi after the, the like incubus is the Latin word for nightmare that eventually the incubus demon came from. I just used the old, you know, incubus uh, definition of nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, what would happen to them during the day? And then I thought, well, then I could do kind of a Jekyll Hyde thing where they turn into, they're still alive, but they're denightmared and they turn into just like a, mostly an ordinary person. Or if it happens to be an animal incubus, it would turn into like more of an ordinary animal during the day. And so that gave me a chance to do kind of a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Um, or almost kind of like the odd couple with him because, you know, it's like his, his uh, nightmare self is like a wild man, and his uh, day self is a much more kind of prim and, <laughs> and kind of rule-oriented type person. And then I, it's fun to, to have his partner play off both of the different personalities, like she's kind of in between the two of them. And then I was, you know, it was fun to, with all the, the fun adventure and the world building to write about their relationship, because what would it be like to create another being like that? It's being a parent, really, and not by your choice, because it just happens. It's a natural process. And how do you learn to live and you know literally live and work with your worst nightmare? <laughs> and if you are a nightmare and you're created to be something, does that mean you can't grow and change and you know become something more than what you were dreamed to be? So you know even with the fun adventure aspects of it, I found some you know really interesting character things to play with. 
So I really enjoyed that. But, you know, I found a lot of people are afraid to read it just because there's an, an evil looking clown on the cover. <laughs> I don't understand this fear of clowns. Apparently yeah. it's a big thing. Yeah, it sure is. And it seems to be getting more. <laughs> I come from a family of clowns. There are King's three fault. people in my family that have gone to clown school. <laughs> Listeners now, don't say that. <laughs> be scared. They're hearing uh, it's a clown. you. <laughs> They're going to be picturing you in clown makeup doing this in this show. Yeah, I'm not really sure what it is. You know, I've read things that say that, that people freak out about anything that is like, it suggests humanity, but it's not like it's exaggerated. Or the features don't move like in dolls. Um, or dolls that have the bigger eyes and the, the kind of different features, like the, the nose, nose and the mouth may be smaller than in real life. And so it creates this just feeling of wrongness that that's not what a human face is supposed to look like. I guess. And, and so some people that really bugs, and it's never really bothered me. So. It's never bothered me. And I love Mardi Gras masks, too. I've got yeah. a bunch of those. And... Yeah. and so I guess it's the distortion of what people on a deep instinctive level believe should be normal. I guess so. Mm -hmm. I, maybe I just don't care about normal one way or the other. So. <laughs> You just don't have it. You know, yeah, it's just, I, I don't it's, care if something's yeah. normal or not. <laughs> yeah, it's usually pretty dull if it is, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. That's the difference for us, I guess. Yep, yep. And you said the second book's coming out in April? Se second book's coming out in April. All right. Um, so still more wacky adventures with them. This one has a, a little bit even more of a, an existential thing, because in their in the dream world, or for the dream people, for the Incubi, they have a legend of the first dreamer that they believe created everything. And so the first dreamer is actually part of this. You know, what is the first dreamer and what happens? And the dream, basically existence, is a, just one giant dream, and they start to find it being subtracted bit by bit. The dream's like getting smaller. Oh. And they're not quite aware that it's happening for a while. It takes a little while before they are. So that was a lot of fun to write, too. Well, that, that sounds good. really good. I can't wait for that. Is there going to be a book three in the works? What's your... No, yeah, it depends. You know, the, the publisher... They were had uh, they changed ownership and so that kind of interrupted their publishing schedule for a little while. Originally, the the second book was supposed to be out in October of last year, and so we'll see. You know, if people still take to it and the sales are good. There might be a third one. Um, it really just kind of depends. And if it's not a third one from them, maybe I'll go ahead and take it somewhere else or start self publishing it. Or we'll see. Okay, so listeners, right buy the book. It comes out in April. Yeah, so it's you know it's all just dependent on sales. <laughs> Now, another book series, after I finish that book, I start reading your Necropolis Omnibus. Or, Say that five well, times fast. I guess it's Necropolis Archives Omnibus. Yeah, it's three novels and three short stories in there. Mm -hmm. Which is about a zombie, basically a zombie PI <laughs> living in a world of monsters. Every basically. time you say that, I laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about that concept and how it developed? I actually wrote the first version of it, ooh, um, I don't know, close to 20 years ago, I think. It started off, uh, I was in a role-playing group that we that everybody wrote their own scenarios. And when it was my turn to write a scenario, you know, I developed this world where the, all of Earth's monsters, about 400 years ago, they emigrated to another dimension and built a city for themselves. You know, humanity was becoming too numerous and, you know, too dangerous in terms of technology and the fact that they could organize. And so it was just better for them to leave. And then I decided, so once I created that scenario and created a whole city for, for the, uh, the other two people in my group to play, and I was going to game master it, I had to create characters for them. So I created uh, two cops that went from, came from Earth uh, on a case, and they both had to stay there. Uh, one of them was cursed so that sunlight would kill him, and the other one was dead and become a zombie. Mm -hmm. and then they, you know, they played the game, and we went through everything. And then when it was, I thought, you know, this would make a really good book. And what I did was decided to just keep you know, the main character as the zombie and not worry about the other one. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it would be a lot of fun to do. I didn't realize that a whole lot of zombie detectives would suddenly show up. I mean, there's like a, maybe a dozen of them. <laughs> you were well ahead of the zombie craze, yeah, to be honest. That's true. Might, yeah, and he does, my zombie character doesn't even eat flesh because the zombie craze hadn't hit to the point where everybody expects a zombie to eat flesh. Well, then just, I'd like your zombies. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't eat flesh. Nice He's the only zombies. one that's, you know, like the, is an intelligent and just a regular guy. Um, he still rots. He, he doesn't. He, so he has to get instead of food like the rest of us need. He has to get regular spells to keep him alive, and he has to work to pay for them. So at least uh. you know, he has a reason why he does what he does. Uh, and he used to be a cop on Earth, so he became a PI in this world. And it's just it's a lot of fun because I get to throw in everything I loved as a kid about monsters. <laughs> you know, throw in anything from any movie. I can come up with any weird monster concept I want. 
And I also decided that probably they would, they, you know, they wouldn't be a closed society. They would still import and export certain things. So they still, they have technology there too, but they've adapted it to their own needs. And because they're so much stronger and they heal faster than humans, they can like have all kinds of like mechanical augmentations to them. And they've tried genetic engineering on some of them. So that let me, you know, create kind of a little odd, almost science fiction element to it, which is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So I love those books. And people love them, too, and they always want to know when there's going to be a fourth one. Because like an idiot, I ended the last one on the cliffhanger that occurred to me as I was writing the last chapter. Mm. And I thought, this would be funny, because the books are humorous, so, on a certain level. And I wish I'd never done it. (laughs) (laughs) I get emails all the time, and the publisher decided that three were enough as far as they were concerned, so they're not going to do any more. I I do have a a chat book that's going to be coming out from Nightwatch Press before too long over in the UK, and she asked me to do a new Necropolis story. So it tells the story of the birth of their two kids. Because hmm. my zombie detective has his wife is a half-vampire he met in his first case. <laughs> and it's complicated how he managed to impregnate her, even though he's dead, but he did. Yeah, and I magic, was going to ask about that. Yeah, magic was involved. Um, Nature you know, will find a way. <laughs> and Or unnature, in this case. <laughs> so it tells that story, and hopefully people will like that, but... One of these days, I'm looking around to see if I can find another publisher for it, or if I have like some open time in my schedule where I'm not writing a book that I've already promised somebody, I may just write one and self-publish it. Yeah, so. I would love to see it. Um, We'd like that. And maybe a Shadow Watch crossover in Necropolis. <laughs> <laughs> the second book, it, it turned out longer. I wasn't paying any attention to how long this one got, because usually I don't have to. Usually I write it, and whatever I'm writing is about the right length. I just you know. But this thing got huge. And so when I told the you know, my publisher how long it was, he's like, you need to cut a little bit. And so I had a scene in there where it does link up to Necropolis. I mean, there's one little bit that shows you that Necropolis is another dimension you could access from this place. And then, but when I had to cut so much, I cut it. And then another editor took a look at it and said, no, you need to add a couple more things here. So then I put it back in. So, <laughs> so now there is in, in the, the um, Greenstalkers is the name of it. In the second uh, Shadow Watch book, there is a little tiny thing that does tie to Necropolis. So they're awesome. Connected. Very cool. Yeah, just something for fun. <laughs> you need to get a Necropolis RPG then if it started originally. Yeah, bug in cool. your ear. Yeah, I've tried to you know talk to a few people about it. So far, you know, no nibbles on it, but we'll see. But I think it'd be a lot of fun to do. I even uh, approached uh, the the Amazon. What do they call it? Worlds or whatever, where they have like, you know, worlds or franchises and other people can write in them. Because mm-hmm. I thought it might be fun to, to open that up to other people so they could write in that, that world. But never heard back from them either. So hmm. if anybody from Amazon's listening, there's a lot of people that would probably have a lot of fun writing yeah. those stories. That would be cool. Yeah. You're one of my new favorite writers right now that I found trying to, you know, place you in some way with other authors. I tell them that like, you're an American Simon R. Green in a way. <laughs> Appreciate that. I love his stuff. So yeah, yeah, I really like Simon R. Green. Does a lot of you know, uh, mm-hmm. all sorts of multi-genre type stuff, and he's uh, got that kind of energy to it, mm-hmm. with less British slang. <laughs> <laughs> slang we recognize. No, I'm just kidding. Although I'm, you know, I should say these particular books. You have a wide range of books, various styles. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, I found I haven't read these, but a very unique kind of book series. I think there's only two books out of it called Ghost Trackers that you did. Yeah. yeah. Unique because you co-wrote it with the Ghost Hunters, uh, Grant Wilson and, and Jason Hawes. Yeah. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was, I actually had a, a book packager that I've worked for before. They would often come to, they come to authors and say, we have this anthology project. Would you write us a story? And they just said, do you have any, any like uh, something that kind of sort of relates to ghosts so we can take a look at? just a book or something. And so I sent him one of my, you know, previously published books. And then they came back and said, Hey, uh, these guys want you to write a story with them. And I was like, Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we batted some ideas around, you know, we had some conference calls and, um, I you know, the, I created a, a, a group of three friends that, um, you know, they had a paranormal incident happen to them in high school and it comes back to, to haunt them, you know, literally in their, um, I think it's their 10th, Maybe 15th, maybe it's 15th, high school reunion. And then the second book that they decided to go ahead and actually start to investigate uh, a little bit. It was a lot of fun to write. Um, the, the thing that I like the best about it is when I look on Amazon and the, the reviews of it, and people are saying, you know, you know, this is the real thing. This is the way it really is. And I'm like, no, I made up a whole bunch. 
is not, you know, because you can't just do the the, uh, the the kind of real paranormal investigation you see where they, you know, people go into a house or a basement or an abandoned farm or whatever, and they're there all night and a couple spooky things happen, but it's really hard to have a whole novel, yeah. you know, based on that. It'd be hard to even do a short story just with that that part. It's a lot of fun to watch and wonder about, but when you're watching on TV, but for writing it'd be difficult. Yeah, so, it works for a visual for a short period of time, but yeah. Right. And so, you know, I kind of just use my normal, you know, crazy imagination to do it. And, the, you know, the books, while the characters might have humorous touches to them, I mean, they're more serious books than, you know, things like Necropolis or, or Shadow Watch. I didn't make them super scary or gross or anything, you know, because I was trying to think. They didn't. Nobody told me that I had to, to to hold back on anything. But I was trying to think of you know the audience they dealt with or the, the watches their stuff. You know how far would they want? How far out could it be? Mm-hmm. And the best thing that I did that I don't. Nobody seemed to notice or care is that if you read the first book, I mean, there's something supernatural going on, but technically there are no ghosts in it, and which I thought was hysterical. But I don't think anybody's noticed. So <laughs> <laughs> read first ghost trackers. I mean, it's. I mean, yeah, technically, literally, there's not a ghost in it, exactly. Uh, plenty of ghosts in the second one, though, that's for sure. <laughs> but it's not a Scooby-Doo mystery. I mean, there really is a supernatural. <laughs> it was the janitor. It's always the janitor. <laughs> Did they roll around in a mystery machine with mysterious smoke coming out of it? <laughs> well, it turned out to be the, the ghost hunters at the end. They pull off their mask and they're <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, um, you're also a professor. And mm-hmm. could you tell us a little bit how you got involved in teaching and what kind of approach you take to teaching students how to write? Sure. Um, well, my, when I, I started college, I started out as an acting major. And I quickly realized that I did not love acting that much. I mean, the professors made it really clear that you had to love it so much you were willing to starve, not have a family, um, you know, be a nomad, live in poverty. And you, not that you're necessarily going to have to do that, but that's how much you should love it, and, you know, because it's hard to make a living in the arts. Yeah. And I realized, you know, at 18 that I did not love it that much. <laughs> then what I decided to do was look around for what I did love that much. And it turned out to be writing. And that's when I really made a commitment to that. And so then I was like, well, crap, what do I major in now? And I, I thought, well, I spent a lot of time in school paying more attention to the teachers and the way they taught than I did the subjects. I was always very interested in the differences between them. So I said, okay, I'll switch to theater education, and that had a minor of English in it, too. So I thought, well, I like all three of those things, and after four years, I should be able to at least focus somewhere on something. So by the time I was done, I you know, was licensed to teach high school, and I, was, and I had student taught my very last quarter, and there was no way in hell I was ever going to work in a high school at that point. It just, nothing was wrong with the students, but it drained all the energy out of me. Oh, yeah. And when I was done, everybody's like, oh, it's great. You're done at three. And it's like, I'm ready to sleep at three. I have no whatsoever. And I couldn't write. And I decided, no, I don't want to do this. And what I liked the most was just working with people's writing. And I had worked in the writing center at the college and worked one-on-one with people in writing. So I said, well, you know, if I go on to graduate school, at least I'll be able to, to teach part-time in college. And I could just teach writing classes. I wouldn't have to worry about the discipline. I wouldn't have to worry about, you know, having to chaperone a dance or, you know, being, whatever, leading a club or something, all the extra stuff they have high school teachers do that they don't pay them for. And I could just focus on the writing and I could go ahead and, you know, teach part-time while I wrote. And um, that worked pretty well for a while, but eventually, you know, it's like um, I was married at the time and we already had had one daughter and we wanted to have another child. And it's and my, I stayed home with the first one more. My wife at the time wanted to stay home with the second one more. And I'm like, maybe I better look for a full-time job at this point. <laughs> so, you know, I just started looking around and I interviewed and found a job where I, I teach now. I've been there 16 years at Sinclair Community College in Dayton, Ohio. And I teach composition courses and creative writing courses and I oversee the creative writing activities and such. And then a few years later, I learned that there was a graduate program in writing popular fiction at Seton Hill University. And so I applied to teach part-time there. So I work with graduate students there in an MFA program. And I have just a few of them every semester and they're working on novels over the course of their two years so so i teach writing very differently depending on whether i'm teaching beginning composition students who often especially at a community college might not have had a lot of success at writing before maybe really intimidated by it and then i'll have people that want to take creative writing at the community college and there's a wide range from people that are retired and want to try it out um, people that think it would be cool to do a manga but we don't have a manga class so they want to take creative writing and the idea that they have to use 
you know, more words. <laughs> and I had one guy who just turned in a giant script for creative for short story writing class. And I'm like, nah, it's not a script class. And then I have my graduate students that many of them have already published by the time, at least, you know, short fiction, sometimes, you know, novels and small press before they come there. So the way I teach is very different. Usually what I try to do, though, regardless of the levels, I try to figure out what is it the writer is trying to do and help them do that better and then find what like two or three things that they may need to work on each time. So instead of like trying to, to work on like fix everything in this manuscript or everything in this particular story or everything in this essay, um, you know, here are the three things or the two things I really want you to concentrate on because I think about what skills they can build for the next time. Because the, the stuff they're writing is, it's practice, is what it is. Um, even though in the graduate program, a lot of them do go on to get their novels published, their thesis novels published. But, you know, it is practice at that time. So I'm not thinking about so much this story. I'm thinking about all the others they're going to write afterwards. And so I just, it's really individual at that point. And sometimes it takes a while to get a feel for what somebody's trying and what their strengths are and really, you know, what they need to, to make their work better. So I just, I kind of tell students a lot of times, I'm like a doctor, you know, you show up and you come into the <laughs> office and, you know, I try to diagnose what you've got going on and give you some ideas on what to try. And then you go home and try it. And then, you know, you come on back to me later and we'll do you know, start all over again. <laughs> that sounds cool. Wish we would have had you for our creative writing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have over 100 stories, you know, multiple mm -hmm. novels published. It's safe to say he knows how to write. <laughs> <laughs> and teaches, of course. So yeah, but still learning all the time. Still learning a lot from students, too. I mean... It's amazing when, especially like in the beginning composition courses, because they don't have any kind of ego or pressure about their writing. They just kind of, they may be afraid of it, but they don't think they're great or anything. And sometimes that lack of, of feeling like they have to produce something great, they just relax and do. Mm -hmm. um, I've learned, I've learned so much more from teaching over the years. Than I probably have or at least as much as I have from my own writing. That's for sure. That's the sign of a good teacher. Yeah, I hope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm always curious about different writers uh, process that they take. Yeah. Are you a more of an outline or plotter type writer playing everything in advance more? Or do you sometimes, are you more leaning towards being more of an organic or a fly by the seat of your pants? Kind of right. Yeah, I kind of do a combination. I mean, these days I could not tell you the last time that I wrote a novel that wasn't, you know, under contract already. So a lot of times those are done with a novel. You, know, you get the contract because of your outline. I mean, you get, so you have to do that first. So by necessity, you end up being an outliner. I find that in general, you know, I'll create a, a basic outline that works pretty well. And then along the way, either before the basic outline or after I start drafting, I create like even more smaller outlines, just list after list of events and story ideas and this and that and character bits and, and whatever. And so I'm constantly like I have one big plan that I'm constantly like focusing in on smaller aspects of it and kind of planning those too. But then when I sit down to write, if it goes in a different direction, as long as it doesn't go wildly off track, especially like with a media tie-in project, mm. uh, you know, if they approve an outline, you better give them pretty close to what they approve. <laughs> uh, but I do find that there are times where, you know, inspiration strikes, like the end of the last Necropolis novel that got me in trouble. You know, <laughs> that was just because it just an idea popped into my head at the, as I was writing it. That'll so, teach you. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of room for that, especially in a novel, because it may not change the whole structure of the basic story, but it really fills in, you know, the gaps as you're going through really well. So it's just really a combination. And, you know, some books are a little more improv than others, and some like the tie-in stuff, or, you know, they are pretty much planned out, and I follow, you know, as much as I possibly can, the outline. Now, you've also written kind of the gambit. You've written adult horror-type stories, and you've written young adult fiction. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if there's any challenges you face switching between the two and what are some things to keep in mind when writing adult fiction? Right. Young adult fiction. Excuse right. me, young adult. Um, the challenge, it's not so much going back and forth between young adult and like adult fiction. It's anytime I switch anything. It's like the older I get, if I'm like if I'm writing several short stories in a row, like earlier in the academic year, like, you know, like September to now, I had, uh, had a bunch of short stories I had to do a lot. And once I got them done, it's like, okay, time to do a novel again. And it just feels like it almost takes like a month maybe for me to be able to shift my mind over from short story mind to novel mind. Same way with the tie-in or same way with something that's funny and then moving to something that's dark. So the, the shifting that kind of thing is harder mm. than shifting young adult. I mean, young adult is just in general, you know, you might write shorter and you might write your sentences shorter and your paragraphs shorter 
you might make things a little simpler in a lot of ways. Um, but really, it's kind of just pull, you know, holding back on. It's like turning up the volume up or down, really. It's, it's not that hard mm-hmm. for me to avoid having a whole bunch of blood or guts in there. I mean, those things are conscious decisions when I go yeah. and I write something. Um, the hardest thing with young adult is just how limited you know, kids are. You know, and, and, and you're limited because they have to be the prime actors in the story. And in real life, you call the cops, you call your parents, you call, you know, you never try to deal with this stuff on your own ever. Yeah. You have to have a reason why they need to do it other than just that's what happens in these kind of stories. <laughs> well, that kind of reminds me the first time I tried watching a Harry Potter movie, mm-hmm. I had never read the books and I, I was horrified. I'm sitting there watching it going, who are these parents and these teachers? Right. They're letting these children like they could die. What is wrong with them? Because like, I'm, I'm not a young adult. I wasn't when they came out. I was an adult. I was grown. I'm married. And and I'm looking at it like they're young enough to be my children. You know? <laughs> just... Exactly. It's why I tell students that a lot of myths and legends and adventure stories, there's no parents around. Right. So, That's why. So there's nobody to tell the kid, don't go on the adventure. Yeah, that's why Disney kills the mother off every time. Well, you know, Star Wars, Luke doesn't have any parental figures at all. I mean, that he knows of, you know, when he starts out. Yeah. And you just go on and on. And I've always wanted to write a story where, you know, the kid goes off on an adventure and then the parents follow to try to stop him. Yeah. And I just, I haven't come up with a good plot for it. I just think that would be so cool to play with that dynamic because you almost never see it. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. It is. You know, the parents could have gone on some kind of quest that almost killed them when they were young. And so they really don't want their kids going on it. So. Yeah. Maybe someday I'll come up with something for it. Um, and, you know, in, in terms of the writing for adults, you know, it, when you're writing genre fiction, in some ways, because the story structures tend to be familiar and comforting to people, you know, I mean, category mysteries and category romances, they can, there's a lot of variance, but there's still a pattern to it uh, on some level. And in a lot of ways, you know, YA's like that because those things are like constraints. And you can still do a lot with it. I remember when Katie Lang used to sing country a long time ago. And I remember a reporter asking her, why did she pick country? And she said she really liked having the, the limitations to play with and see what she could do with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like having rules in sports. I mean, it's you got to have something to see what you can do and the limitations of. And so so genre can work that way, just like young adults can. But, you know, if you want to, if you're writing for adults, you know, theoretically, you can have, you know, a lot more complex story structure. And, of course, you can have more violence and sex, but you can also have a lot more of the ambiguity that I think young people don't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, you can write about a marriage where the couple, you know, they fight and still love each other. And there's the mix of all this weird love and kind of petty resentment and other stuff that just is like this big ocean that surges in a marriage all the time. Mm-hmm. And you can't tell kids that are just discovering love for the first time what that's like. Yeah. You know, you can't tell them what it's like to see the damn socks in the middle of the floor one more time. And this is the time you just can't stand it anymore. <laughs> You are married. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. For the second time. So. I mean, have you seen teenagers' rooms? They're like, this is heaven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, but, but there's things like that that you could bring into it. And plus, you know, you can have endings that aren't necessarily happy. I mean, uh, it, it's one of the things for young adults, I think, that probably ultimately there's more optimism probably in those books. I mean, they're already in uh, going through a lot of things that can be very depressing and you, you probably don't want to add to that. I mean, there are a lot of books that people, I mean, teenagers do love to read, especially like some of the nonfiction ones about like a child called it and things like that, that, you know, or nonfiction about horrible abuse, memoirs about horrible abuse. And my daughter, my oldest, who's 20 now, went through a phase where she read a lot of those. But I think ultimately those come out to a place of hope where, you know, I've overcome the abuse and here I am writing this memoir. You know, I've made it. I'm stronger now. And for adults, you don't have to necessarily do that. You know, you can have your characters damned to hell for all eternity at the end of the story. And I don't think that, you know, if Harry Potter had worked out that way, it's like Voldemort kills everybody and he enslaves Harry and Harry's his servant for the rest of all time. You could do that for adults on some level. It might work, but especially if it was already a dark thing, like a Stephen King book or something, maybe. But probably not for young adults. So I think maybe keeping the, however dark they seem to be, I think there's probably a core of optimism in them. Yeah. But you don't necessarily have to have for adults. Um, I mean, this is America, so people love entertainment, and they love entertainment that makes them feel good. So if you're writing for entertainment, you probably don't want to have downer endings all the time. Americans are generally a bit more optimistic, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you know, if it's like a European movie, it's probably not going to have the the greatest of endings. No, no. (laughs) It's always depressing and sad, and you have to kill people. Yep. 
in your time of teaching, mm-hmm. what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen by new writers? By new writers? Um, if they're writing a short story for the first time, I can turn to page three, not even reading it, and put my finger about two-thirds of the way down, and that's where the story usually starts. <laughs> I never thought of that. It's just seeing it, you know, year after year after year. What I tell them is that, you know, they come from a, a visual culture, and even if they read a lot, they've probably got hundreds or thousands of hours more of visual media kind of in their brain somewhere. And visual media can show us a setting, like, instantly. You know, if the camera opens up on a desert, and there's so much. I mean, there's color, there's sound, there's movement of, like, maybe the wind blowing the sand around. But we only have one word at a time to create those effects. And we and so what they try to do is they try to recreate that sort of instant impression mm. in words. And it takes them two or three pages sometimes to do it. And so they have to learn a, a very different way of communicating ideas. The people that don't write with any kind of... Uh, of immersive connection to the viewpoint character. They're so used to being the viewpoint for most people as in visual media is themselves watching other people do things. And so people will start writing that way and it's very distant and it's almost like a summary of what's happening. And so trying to teach them what they do is have to like imagine they're inside this person's head, feeling, thinking everything this person is. Mm -hmm. It's more like acting. That's where my acting background really helps is that you need to think like that. Um, there's this really cool video. I can't remember the name of it. It's on YouTube, but, uh, it, it shows, it's like an action spy thing from the point of view of the spy. And you see all the super action stunts that he's doing, you know, with this little rap music playing in the background. And so what I do with classes a lot of times is I'll show them like a clip from something like the born identity or whatever, where you just watch people fight. And then I show them this, that where we are supposed to be the fighter, you know, we're supposed to be the spy having the, the adventure and say, this is the kind of thing you want to try to imagine when you write. And so, you know, that happens. I mean, they just, it's hard to get them to, to get into a deeper kind of um, thing like that. If it's student short stories, they almost always end with somebody dying because they think that's super dramatic. Mm-hmm. And it's not because we've only read about this character for 10 pages. We don't love them or care about them. Yeah. It's not instant, you know, it's not instant impact of drama by any means for that. Um, having characters narrate their own stories of death, like in first person. And yeah. I always have to say, how's this person telling the story? Uh, you know, to think about that um ideas that they don't realize are cliches because they just don't read a lot oh, and, yeah. and so they invent something that i mean i just went through the last couple of days stories for one of my classes and some were a couple of them are really well written but i'd have to say um yeah you know there's a lot of stories about girls that cut themselves so just that by itself doesn't make a story you need to do more with it or think about a different kind of twist on it i did have the person who died and narrated their own death and so i have to point out that that happens a lot and it's kind of a cliche. So what do you, how else do you deal with it? Mm-hmm. So people that don't really think about their ideas. Um, the other thing I see a lot is that people will save their very best idea for the end. And so the rest of the story is not very interesting until it gets to the end. Mm-hmm. So I tell them they should start off with a, their best idea and make their story better as they go. Mm-hmm. And that helps a lot for people. Because a lot of what they do when they start writing is throat clearing or just trying to figure out how to write. It's almost like they've wandered into a house they've never been to before and they've got to explore it for a long time before they can figure anything out about it. And, and so telling them to kind of take whatever their main, the cool thing they're saving for the end to start with and then build on it, that works pretty well, too. So I would say the, those things. I mean, there's a lot more, but those are the ones I'll toss out for right now. That was great. Okay, now I want to go take your class. <laughs> <laughs> How far would the commute be? <laughs> well, you know, if you go to my webpage, is just timwagner.com, and there's a link to my blog, and my blog's all about writing stuff. Okay. So, a lot of the stuff that, that I'm talking, you know, I talk about, I've been talking with you, I've got little blog articles about it. Okay. Well, I only do them every couple months when I think of something new to say, but I, it's, there's like archive a couple years in there, so. Awesome. So you, anybody who might be interested, you know, just check those things out. Hopefully they'll help. Great. We'll put a link to it in the description of the show. Yeah. All right. Is there any other big tips out there you'd like to mention before? before you t- any tips for writers? Yes. yes. Probably write what you're most passionate about. A lot of people... They seem to want to write whatever they think the market wants. And it, there really isn't anything that the market wants. And you can't, if it's traditional publishing, you can't tell because the stuff that's coming out now was bought a year or two ago. And publishers are already kind of thinking of what the next thing's going to be. There, there's no way that you're ever going to be able to tell. Um, I, if you love something and it's very similar to other stuff, you know, like I, one of the stories I got in my class was just a, it was a zombie apocalypse story, but it was just the same as all the other ones. And even though it was well done, you know, think about what might make yours different. I wrote a book called um, The Way of All Flesh, which is a zombie apocalypse story, except that one of the main characters is a zombie. 
And in his mind, he's human and the world around him is distorted. So, you know, I took a different kind of perspective for part of the story. And I have a very different reason for why the zombie apocalypse happened. And so thinking about, you know, ways you can make your work more unique or more yours. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, people who self-publish probably should um, uh, try to get people to help you edit your work, get feedback for your work that aren't Mm -hmm. your friends and family. I'll get students that have self-published and sometimes they'll give me one of their books and, you know, it's got errors in it. And it's obvious it's like publishing the very first thing they did. I probably wrote uh, 10 books maybe before I had my first one published. And a few, just a few of those early ones have been published since. But the first, like, five or six, I won't show anybody. They're horrible. (laughs) I could have published them when I started. You know, the very first thing I wrote, you know, an hour later it's up on Amazon. I don't know if I ever would have tried to get any better. What would be the point? You know, you might just in general kind of want to do that. But I don't know if you get enough feedback. I mean, what you do is accept it immediately, and it's on Amazon, and people, you know, you get a couple friends and family that tell you it's great. I mean, it's what are, what's your impetus for getting better? So I'm, I, I don't really know what it's like because I didn't grow up in that kind of time. But I, I, I'm kind of scared by it because I think I just would have stayed writing the same kind of stuff I did then, and I don't know if I ever would have grown. So I guess I just say get, get a lot of good feedback on your work and try to be real dispassionate about it. You don't want to be like the, the people on American Idol in the tryouts that are convinced that the world's greatest singers. Oh, and, you know, you see them get up. I hate that part of American Idol because I think it's so exploitive. I mean, I know why they do it, but I just, it's, and these people get a shot. But yeah, it's kind you of can't just, watch that show. Yeah, yeah, I don't like that part. But, you know, those people seem to have no idea that they're horribly out of tune. And somebody somewhere has got to hear them and tell them this. Yeah. So it's the same kind of thing with, imagine if those people would just upload their stuff to, you know, whatever music sharing site. And they would never try to get better because they would be living their dream of being an awesome singer. So I think the more feedback you can get from the more people and still balance that out with, you know, trying to, you know, believe in yourself at the same time, not let it crush your dreams or anything. I think for self-publishing, I think that it'll it will really you know, do a lot for people. It's interesting to, to watch because there's the the old guard, I guess, and then mm-hmm. and this new guard, especially the self-publishing part of it. And, and it is such a unique, a different path. Mm-hmm. And I am afraid in some ways that some authors who could be really great masters or something will just kind of putter away and, and maybe just give up. Well, yeah, because the problem is I think that the people in the self-publishing, the ones that pull ahead of the pack, might not necessarily be the best writers. They're the best marketers. Right. You know, and so someone who can talk a good game will end up getting ahead of somebody who maybe can write circles around them. And that's yeah. kind of a – because I, I don't think – I. I'm I'm too Midwest. Like if I wrote a book, I couldn't go. Everyone read it. It's the most awesome right, thing ever. Right. I'd be like, well, I wrote a book, and I hope you like it. If if you want to read it, it won't hurt my feelings if you don't. I mean, you know how it is. <laughs> I know exactly what that's like. <laughs> well, I think the, I tell students too that self-publishing is a lot like if you want to go into the lemonade business and you want to sell it on your front lawn. And you're in a neighborhood where everybody has a stand on their front lawn. And it's like, how are people going to choose your lemonade? I mean, what are you going to do to get people to choose it? Um, Add you lavender know, or rosemary, I'm just saying. Yeah, so it could be anything like that. But you know that, you know, I've read articles where people, it's what I think they call it choice fatigue, where you have like a choice of like maybe 50 items on a menu. And then finally, when you choose something, whatever you eat, you're dissatisfied with because you can think of all the other things you almost chose or could have chosen but didn't. Yeah. So I think a lot of people will be like, well, the hell with it. I'm just driving to the store and getting Country Time Lemonade. It's there in the store. It's got a you know brand name on it. I can kind of trust it. And there's not a billion choices. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's really hard if you have to stop at each one of those stands and sample the lemonade. I mean, how long would it take you to go through that whole neighborhood just to find a glass of lemonade that you want? You would and be I think full this, before you even figure out which yeah. one you wanted. <laughs> and I think that, that a lot of self-publishers, that's you know their problem in terms of reaching an audience. I mean, yeah, it's on Amazon, but there's a billion other things on Amazon. I mean, how in the world do you get people to try your stuff? And how in the world do you convince them to to even take a look in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. I think the ones that are going to really succeed in the long run are the ones who are both good marketers and good writers. So we're going to have people who are good writers, but terrible marketers, Mm. who will will maybe never try to go to a publisher and might Mm. fail. And then vice versa, who are really good marketers for yeah. type of writers. And now, I think there are going to be some that are that genuinely fall in that Goldilocks zone, who are good writers and happen to be good marketers. But I would imagine that those are two very separate skill sets. So that would be a small percentage. Right. And you know, and writers tend to be introverts anyway, so yeah. not necessarily the best marketers of their work. I think that 
in the future, it's possible that traditional publishing, in terms of bringing out the book, will disappear. But all the other stuff that publishers do, in terms of like editing and marketing and maybe the artwork, they'll they'll do as like a service to writers that you pay for, mm. um, as opposed to partner with a publisher and then together you share the profits. Because uh, you can bring the book out yourself. They, you won't need that. You won't. People may not read paper books as much in the future. So, but you still may need people to do the other stuff for you. So it just may be that like a lot of our technology has put like the burden of the work on us. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to get our own drinks at the fast food place. We have to pump our own gas. We have I know. To our own banking. It's like everybody's like technology is so great. And I'm like, you're doing the work people used to get paid for and you're doing it for free. I hate self-checkout. What is yep. the, you know, I, I'm already paying inflated prices for crap. Now I have to check it out myself. Right. And it's all in the name of convenience, but it's convenient for the business because they're the ones making the money. So. Yes. Yeah, so I think that probably that the same thing will happen to writers where it's just um, you'll end up having to do it. I think also writers might start to form writing collectives to cross-market themselves. So if you get like three or four mystery writers or three or four horror writers that kind of do similar stuff, they might, it's almost like being in a band. Like a writing you, co-op. Yeah, and I think you'll see – I'm starting to see some people do that. I've seen I that. We may see some of that. I see that in self-publishing. They do like joint box sets and stuff like right. that. Yeah. Right. And it seems to work really well. So. I like the cooperative business model. Yeah, it yeah. is interesting. So we'll see. We'll see, but I think there be, we'll see more people doing that. Yeah, it's interesting because we also big into the web series world, for example, mm-hmm. and they face a lot of those similar. Yeah, challenges. it's the same problems. Right. The internet's right. infinite. How do you get attention? Right. <laughs> <laughs> My youngest daughter's four or fifteen now, and you know she's into YouTube big time, which her generation is like supposed to be their TV, and it's really what she spends most of her time doing, and. You know, trying to talk to her about how does she find, you know, things to watch. And often it's just from her friends. It's word of mouth. And so there are some, you know, YouTubers that are probably making tons of money based on that. But it's like, how do you even try to get word of mouth? You just try and get lucky? I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, basically. It's tough. Now, before we go, uh, any upcoming projects you'd like to mention as we're nearing the end of the episode? Well, like I said, Dream Stalkers, the second Shadow Watch book's coming out in April. Um, I have a short horror novel called Eat the Night coming out from Dark Fuse Press, but I don't know when. I'm pr- I'm going to be doing a, probably doing another tie-in novel that hasn't been approved by the studio yet, or that even the pitches haven't been approved. Me to do not outline, but it's probably one that I've worked in before that we talked about for quite a while. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I can't say anything. I don't I don't have a contract yet. I mean, I have an offer to do it, but until the studio says yes on a particular, right. you know. But but in general, they, yeah, I'll be doing that too. So, and those are the things I got coming up. Working on original horror novel right now. While I'm waiting for the the studio to to go ahead, which may or may not have the initial C and W in it. But waiting for them to uh, go ahead and approve. <laughs> those are the things I got in the horizon. I hope right you're now. not a mystery, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not that big of a secret, but yeah. I'm just not going to announce it until it's done. You know, just in case. Yeah. <laughs> and also, before we go, we do want to. Uh, uh, we want you to tell our listeners where they can find you and your work online. Sure. Well, my website is just timwagoner.com, and Wagoner spelled W-A-G-G-O-N-E-R. And that has links to, you know, where you can find my books. It's got some articles on there, some short stories you can take a look at. It's got a link to my blog, like I said earlier. Um, so that would be the best place to go. Well, thank you very much, Tim. Yes, thank you. You are so fun to talk to, and you have so much information. This was a lot of fun. Oh, great. Thank you. I had a great time, too. And thanks for giving me the excuse to set up Skype on my new computer. <laughs> okay, well, good. Well, keep well, in touch with right us. Away, I can believe it. Okay, great. Loved it. And let us know about uh, your new stuff coming out, because we'd love to have you back. Okay, great. Love that. Hi, I'm supernatural thriller author J.F. Penn, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, a big thanks to Tim for speaking with us. Coming up on our upcoming episodes, we will be speaking with professional actor Michael Laskin about his 35 years working in film, television, theater, and voiceovers. He's also the author of the new book, The Authentic Actor, The Art and Business of Being Yourself. And we have some web series fun coming up with our interview with Britton Valenti, the creator of the sci-fi web series Interrogation. And an interview with Tessa Marie Gadar about her long-running web series, Orange Juice in Bishop's Garden, and the new media festival, DC Web Fest. Before we go, we want to remind you that you can keep track of us on Genretainment Facebook page, Marx's Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, our website at genretainment.com, 
or all of the shows at scififulseradio.com. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until Until next next time. time. Bad monkey.